My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. I'm Joe Devine. Welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dermot Kavanagh. Dermot is the author of Different Class, Football, Fashion and Funk, The Story of Laurie Cunningham. I spoke to Dermot about the book and also some of the challenges that black footballers faced in that period of British history. Laurie Cunningham was born in Archway, North London in 1956. As a schoolboy, he was turned down by Arsenal but found employment at nearby Leighton Orient. At Orient, where last week a statue of Laurie was unveiled outside the stadium, he played some of his best ever football, before moving to West Brom in 1977. At West Brom, Laurie played alongside Brendan Batson and Cyril Regis, two other prominent black players of the era, and they became affectionately known as the Three Degrees, in reference to a popular American singing group. In 1979... Real Madrid paid a club record of £950,000 to sign Laurie, who became the Bernabeu's hopeful star player. A league title and three injuries later, however, and Laurie left Madrid, his time there having not worked out in the way that he likely would have hoped. He played for ten clubs throughout his career, including Leicester, Manchester United, Marseille and Wimbledon, where he was a seemingly ill-fitting member of the team's unlikely 1988 Cup win. Ill-fitting, for Laurie was well known for his skilful football and graceful movement, the antithesis, perhaps, of the hard-knuckled crazy gang. In 1989, Laurie died in a car crash, aged 33. He is recognised as the first ever black player to professionally represent England at any level, the under-21s, and he is remembered as one of the best footballers England has ever produced, according to some on his day on par with the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo. But there was so much more to Laurie than his football. He was also a superb dancer, a fashion aficionado, and a genuine icon for many of England's subsequent black footballers. My chat with Dermot took place upstairs in a pub in Islington, not too far from where Laurie grew up. The audio is a little bit noisier than usual for that reason, but I really hope that you enjoy this episode. I had a great time talking to Dermot. And if your interest is piqued by the story of Laurie, the book, Different Class, is available on Amazon. There's a link in the description if you'd like to take a look. It's a fantastic read and it would also make a brilliant Christmas gift, very reasonably priced. So do go and check that out. Finally, today's episode is sponsored by Canvasist.com. Canvasist is a website that has one of the largest selections of football canvases. They're very reasonably priced. They'd make fantastic Christmas gifts. So if you want to head over to canvasist.com, there is a link in the description as well. So thanks very much for downloading this week's episode. And without further ado, here we go. Well, I suppose it makes sense to say that we are in Islington. We're just down the road from where Laurie Cunningham was born and where he grew up. Um, and I wanted to get a sense from you, if I can, of society when he was growing up, because obviously a lot of the book focuses on 
uh, I suppose racial difficulties and a lot of the documentaries I've watched about Laurie focus on that as well and it's, I think it can be quite difficult for people who are my age or who are younger to really get to grips with what it was like to be black or an ethnic minority in the time when, when Laurie was growing up so I wondered if you could try and give us a sense of that if possible Quite a big question, Joe. <laughs> he he born in London and Jamaican parents who came over in the nineteen fifties. So about a decade after the, the Windrush, which was the, first, the, the, the sort of iconic ship that brought Jamaican work, um, not Jamaican Caribbean workers to the UK yeah. after the war to rebuild the country as part of that. And North London at the time, that part of North London where Laurie was born. North Islington, so Finsbury Park, Archway, Tottenham eventually, Wood Green, all those areas became, by the late 60s, was a, was one of the largest areas for, for the uh, Caribbean immigrants, black immigrants, yeah. um, in, in that part of London. So Laurie grew up in a, an area that I think was quite hard and quite tough, but probably talking to some of his... Um, Contemporaries grew up just thinking that you know, until about the age of twelve, thirteen, that they were just Londoners. They were just you know, part of it, and then it sort of struck them mm. as they get into their teenagers that they've been, oh, hang on, it's, we're being treated differently, yeah. you know. And uh, there's actually there's an example. I can't remember who it was, but in in the opening chapters of the book, there's an example of a young black guy who used to say when he was a teenager he was proud to be English and yeah. he realised that the English, you know, the white yeah, English yeah. didn't, that's, didn't um, want to do that's that. That's a DJ in sort of called Don Letts who, right. who does, he's got a programme on Radio 6 now, but he he was quite um, important in the punk term. He, he he was linked to the clash very heavily. But he, right. he was from Jamaican, a bit older than Laurie, but from Jamaican parents, grew up in Brixton, but said um, he he considered himself English or British and and then uh, but then the term black British hadn't really been coined then mm. got coined after that and then the late but he said to most people we were black bastards mm. so there would have been um, wouldn't say overt racism but certainly there would have been uh, casual racism mm. certainly at football um, and, and more than casual racism at football but also the um, police the stop and search laws yeah. would have Affected people like Laurie and and his generation, so they were growing to like Laurie, nineteen, born in fifty six, so sort of sixty eight, sixty nine. He was a teenager, so that early seventies, right up to the sort of late seventies, would have been yeah. in the the heart of that antagonism towards the police and yeah. from the police, uh, and and that whole sort of thing of every time you we went out, there was suspicion on you. If you went out in groups, you'd be stopped, you'd be asked questions, you'd be mm. harassed. Um, which I think, uh, certainly in Islington, was very bad at the time. Yeah. Um, and so around Holloway and Archway, there's you know, reported cases of people being stopped, you know, sort of 30 times in a month. And, and mm. so there was this real, at the time, in the, in the early 70s, National Front were, were on the rise. Mm. And um, the biggest sort of social problem, I would say, was... Um, was uh, racial division the way it was you know portrayed by the by the press and and, and the media uh, um, 
there would have been a that would have been the hot topic of the day yeah. a bit like immigration is now or yeah. Brexit you know everyone would have been talking about the papers would have been talking mm. about you know criminal black youth muggers mm. black teenagers that are mugging old ladies yeah. that was that was the tabloid myth or the tabloid villain was that there was these unemployed black teenagers yeah. who who weren't fully British somehow mm. who were going around mugging old white ladies yeah and it's interesting that isn't it because I think not only do you have all of those stereotypes to deal with and police harassment to deal with but as well I find it really interesting the idea of growing up uh, in, in London having been born here and then sort of realising as you get to, to an older teenager that you know the, the people around you don't necessarily want you to associate or identify mm. with them so I mean that's a massive identity issue really isn't well, it like, exa- like maybe feel stateless I'm right? glad you said that, said that because I, the more I looked into Laurie's story I realised it was a question it was a story about identity yeah. um, and identity is a very sort of um, fluid sort of subject isn't it and, and do you feel you know, do you feel British do you feel English do you feel like you're from London and Laurie's an interesting case because he was his parents came from Jamaica. His older brother Keith was born in Jamaica, spent his first four years there. Laurie was born in London, never went to Jamaica, but grew up hearing about Jamaica as somewhere special. And, and he had this whole culture within Finsbury Park. Like you say, once you get to about early teens, 14, mm. 15, then you start realising that maybe things aren't the same as yeah. what you thought they were. Which and, is and you're being treated differently. Yeah. Itself, yeah, and then it? you're like, what am I? Am I... Yeah. Am I Jamaican? Am I am I a Londoner? Yeah, I'm a, I'm yeah. a British, but people say I'm not British, and, and that's uh, a retrospective realization. Yeah, yeah, as well. yeah. yeah. Maybe even feel so stupid you're going through. It wasn't yeah, 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 and identity, I think, becomes a, a key thing. And that whole thing, going back to the Don Letts quotes about black British, and you know, we weren't called black British; we were called black bastards. Mm. But that whole thing about <clears throat> being black and British, I think he was part of that generation because it hadn't. Obviously, there had been black people in Britain for for years, you know, hundreds of years. But um, that generation who grew up educated in in British schools, yeah, were were a sort of a new generation. You know, it sounds a bit yeah. trite, but but and the identity oh, mass, issue yeah. becomes yeah becomes really key because to who Laurie is. Yeah, well. yeah, 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 yeah. And um, that's what I found very interesting about. The book. So it becomes a, and then he chose to identify himself through his clothes, through his love of music, his love of dancing. So again, mm. that's really fascinating. Yeah, well, he's, he's not that. just a, a carbon cutout, you mm. know, sort of footballer. And then I go home, and then I, then I think about football, and then yeah. I, I might play golf every now and then. It's yeah. it's completely different to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about mm. his, his dancing then, because I suppose, as you say if he's in a position where he chooses his own identity, he chooses that to be a part of it. Uh, what what was that to him? And it, um, also, for people who don't really know who Laurie Cunningham is, give, it, give us a little rundown of, uh, of his dancing skills I too. Was, well, yeah, I, th- I think it was massively important to him. And the, yeah. the Soul Boys in London, very different to Northern Soul, which has been quite well documented, and, and Southern Soul makes you sound like you're talking about America, but, but mm. the London Soul Boys... Which Laurie was was a key part of. I wasn't sure when I first heard that. I thought well, maybe this is a little bit. Am I stretching it? But no, he was he was going to the the sort of influential clubs, the clubs that people, no one else was going to apart from the best dancers. Mm. Clubs like Crackers in Wardour Street uh, and um, Bluesville in Wood Green, and and they 
were from that generation, like mainly from the Caribbean parents, but African parents, as well, um, and from all over London, but but a lot from East London um, and North London, forging an identity through dancing to this what turned what became jazz funk music. So yeah. it, was, it, it was fresh American music that no one had heard. You know, it was import only, the opposite to Northern Soul, which was like records that were 10, 15 years yeah. old and, and sounded generally the same, you know, this sort of fairly sort of formulaic music, whereas mm. the jazz funk was far more expressive, far more fresh. And dancing to that, that was their thing, and also dressing the way they did in sort of bespoke suits, I think, consciously or not, that was... Um, this is who I am I don't mm. care what you think of me and when you get to that yeah that's teenage thing right? when you're about 16 it's like mm. I don't care what you think but I'm going to dress like this I'm going to dance this music and, and this is mm. all about I'm ahead of you, you know, I'm ahead of the curve and um, he loved it and he was totally into that as much as the football um, mm. and I think the dancing just came naturally to him you know he, he grew up in a house there was music everywhere you know going to gatherings, wedding parties, there was always music. He was musically talented, he taught himself how to play the piano. So I think it was just who he was. I don't even gave a second thought to it. It was just mm. like that's that's my culture, that's my yeah. identity, going back to that. Mm. And you, you know, he probably almost certainly wasn't aware that you know this is unusual. It's just uh, this is what I'm interested in, so I'm doing it. Yeah. And then it became the soul, the whole soul thing became massive. You know, sort of twenty years later with soul to soul and, and mm. DJ culture and all that. Mm. But he was he was right at the forefront of that, with along with a lot of those sort of those sort of pioneering London DJs yeah. who, who who do remember him from mm. that time. So again, that's fascinating. Mm. Well, there's some crossover as well, isn't there? Because I, I heard that he. Um he he also did uh, did ballet and also he did yoga, which I found very funny Ooh. because I think back in two thousand and six, everyone was talking about Ryan Giggs as this sort of revolutionary for doing yoga and uh, you know keeping his body going a little bit longer. Yeah. But here's Laurie Cunningham doing it. I, in the I, 70s. I'm not sure he, he did ballet. He, did, he didn't actually go to ballet classes, right, okay. like, but but he 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 understood as someone who was interested in dancing and. and Jazz dancing as well. It's very interesting that. So you've got Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, that sort of Hollywood dancing. But yeah. also, there's other dancers like the Nicholas Brothers, who were black sort of dancers in the 30s out of Harlem. And um, he absorbed all that. And um, so I think ballet, he, he probably appreciated, and he probably appreciated the balance and the muscle, you know, sort of the core muscles, mm. strength. I don't think he, he ever did ballet, mm. but. When he was 19, he met a girl called Nikki, and they were together for about seven or eight years. She was totally into it. They met in a, in a, a soul club yeah. in Tottenham, and um, they just had a shared interest, and he loved it. So he just loved dancing. And I think, again, I thought maybe this is pushing it a bit, the fact that he's a footballer and a dancer. Is, is it trying to make it all fit? Mm. But I think he thought like a dancer, if you know what I mean. So like, yeah. there was that thing... If you ever see footage of him, he, he's got this fantastic balance. But and the way Nicky described it to me in the book was that um, you know, he he could look ahead because he was thinking like a dancer. He was like three yeah. or four steps ahead. So well, he, he had this, he had this, out, he? he had this, the feet, the steps yeah. in his head, and he knew what he was going to do. So he was going to twist, he was going to turn, he was going to do a roll or whatever. Yeah. And she said, once you're a dancer, you can tell from his body language. Whereas 
obviously professional footballers can't yeah. tell what he's doing if he's throwing his arm up in the air yeah. like John Travolta <laughs> um, does that mean he's going to double back and turn round yeah. which it does because yeah. it's all to do with balance you know but you know uh, Derby counter defender in 1973 isn't isn't going to pick up on that. <laughs> Maybe the, the very <laughs> yeah, rare yeah, one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, as you say, you, you see him dribbling now, and I, th- I think that's one of the, the the traits of his game that he's sort of he's best remembered for. And he does dribble with his chest out, and it's all about his feet movement. You can kind of see that see that in yeah. it. Yeah. And I suppose it's probably the same part of the brain. I would have thought that kind of balance and forethought exactly. and pre-planning. I think you know. I think it's the way you think about how you, how you're going to move, where you're going to go, mm. and most great players you know, or all great players would have that but certain players see the game different I think he's one of those you know, I mean I don't want to compare him to people but there's um, I mean there's lots of examples isn't it, of people who play the game or see the game completely differently mm. like maverick people mm. and the obvious one I suppose is Eric Cantona yeah. but you know, and I think Cunningham had that about him that he, he picked it up fairly naturally instinctively and there wasn't a lot of coaching that he, that he needed or that you could do because yeah. he would just do what stuff came instinctively. Yeah. And um, well, speaking of again, I think he might have come up against later in his career, got up against barriers where you yeah know, he was, and certainly at Real Madrid, he, was, he felt isolated and mm. all that. And I think at Orient, where he was probably at his most free and, and just he was the best player in the team by a mile. Yeah. Yeah. And he he could do whatever he wanted, and yeah. no, I think that's why he's so so well remembered at Orient. It's, it's because he just no one had ever seen anything like him. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of comparisons, Vincente Del Bosque, uh, ex Spain manager, uh, who I think was a teammate of his at Real Madrid, yeah. has has said uh, in, in 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 recent interviews that he was on par with Cristiano Ronaldo in his eyes. That his raw ability was at that yeah. level. Yeah, I mean. It, it, there's lots of examples of that of people comparing to and, and the thing one of the tragic things about Laurie is that he never really fulfilled his potential at Real Madrid um, mm. he, his first year sort of 16 months was good but still there was niggling injuries and there was a lot of criticism because they paid a club record for him almost a million pounds mm. and the Spanish you know marker newspaper were hard to please and and Again, if he's not playing the way he wants to, or he's been given a, a role isolated on the wing, he could fade from a game. And yeah. there, there's there's one editorial which I write about in the book, which is quite good, saying that um, I'll get the quote right, but yeah, basically he doesn't sweat the shirt. He doesn't um, <coughs> seek, don't hide. You know, it's um, it's sunny here, not you can't hide. It's not like the fog of London. Mm. You know, we can see everything. They thought he was too basically a luxury play you know? right, he wasn't yeah. getting involved enough and he wasn't going and winning the ball which is not the sort of game he, he, he played in he loved it when he had the ball and then he yeah. would take people on but so there was always criticism right from the start you know like mm. anyone now like Pogba gets it or um, Ozil maybe yeah 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 those sort of well you paid all this money what are you doing you're mm. just standing on the wing waiting you know doing nothing yeah. and um but his first season was good and they won the double and, and that also when he went to Real Madrid that, that was a team they were quite a gritty team a lot of them were made up of players from the youth team yeah. Del Bosque had come up from the youth team and, mm. and they were quite a hard tackling Spanish defensive side and they didn't have a lot of flair mm. they had a great header of the ball up front Santiana Carlos Santiana 
but Cunningham was brought in to bring the the flair and the glamour and hopefully get them back to you know the the great team that had had won so much in the 60s Mm. and there hadn't been any European Cup final for for almost 10 years so Mm. there was a lot on him and um, just didn't work out well it I think in flashes it did but no he's, he's fondly remembered by quite a lot of the fans but I think injury basically crippled his career and poor medical care from the club yeah. as well. He was misdiagnosed with a with a knee problem, and also the, the when he got a, he got a toe stamp um, get playing against Real Betis, it broke his toe, and that never he, his his initial treatment wasn't satisfactory. Right, never fully recovered, and he, his whole sort of game changed. His space, his pace went mm. didn't go, but it wasn't as 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 electric as it was. And um, isn't it true as well that one of his knee injuries uh, was caused by a teammate in training? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, a tra- I, yeah. Again, I, some people say it was deliberate. I, I, it's hard hard to believe that. But yeah. <clears throat> his uh, meniscus, I think it was in his knee, went just as he was coming back from injury from the toe injury. Yeah, and it just went. And um, and then he's getting on. You know, he's getting into twenty six, twenty seven. Um, but I think uh, the, the the medical treatment wasn't what. Yeah, I'd, maybe the advances weren't there back in nineteen early eighties. But he got poorly treated by the Real Madrid medical team. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember hearing him say in interview. He's out for a year. He got he got a stamp on his toe and he was out for over a year. Yeah. And then, back the third game back was European Cup final against Liverpool in eighty one, and he wasn't fit. And then yeah, threw it yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, let's take it back to the beginning of his football career as well, because there's a lot of interesting stuff that I wasn't really aware of around that time. I guess it would be be the sixties when he was when he was a teenager or early seventies. Uh, Fifty six, so he'd have been. Uh, so what's that making? Seventy two, he would have been. Okay, like, yeah. Sixteen. So, so yeah, around yeah. then, uh, and there was there seems to have been uh, this. I suppose it's a, a stereotype about black footballers, and there was a, an interview. <laughs> Uh, I can't remember the name of the editor, but an editor asked all of the you know the, the Division One managers at the time, "What's your opinion of black players? Do you have a black player on yeah. your team?" And the vast majority seemed to be very distrusting of them yeah. for you know uh, obviously racist reasons. Now, retrospectively, seems seems so obvious, but I wasn't really aware that this this existed within football. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was um, a sort of coaching myth grew up around black players that they were I don't know somehow lacked moral fibre you know, they, they were cowardly they didn't like the cold weather they didn't like the mud and the wet didn't like playing in the north mm. <laughs> any any sort of cliche you could you could throw at it yeah. and that they were slightly fancy dance you know they, they were good at the ball and they were they were skillful but the minute it got a bit a bit tough yeah they went missing right and I don't know where that came from but um I think it's probably the old idea of um, being a good pro and, and you know and sort of you know just giving it all for the club. It was black players might have been a bit more thoughtful about the game and would have like been more touch players. You know? Yeah. And Laurie makes quite that one. When I grew up, I, I was always playing around black players and um, white white kids seemed to rush around a shade too fast. You know? Yeah. You know, steaming in for tackles or, or running with the ball, yeah, you know, on a on you know <clears throat> down the channel or whatever it is, mm. and um, 
he might control the ball, look up, take someone on, take someone else on, play it, and then and then run on. And it, it was a different approach to the game, which mm. I think just came up against the, the sort of the coaching orthodoxy at the time was you know to hard get in hard sticky up and, and distrust of skill distrust of flair you know which mm. has never really gone away as yeah. I can tell from English English coaching but yeah it was this thing that, that they thought black players were somehow cowardly somehow and also going back to the thing about being a good player they weren't quite professional you know they, you couldn't quite rely on them somehow they, they, yeah. they weren't going to week in week out be the pro that you wanted and do what you told them to do mm. so this whole thing about maverick players as well you know coaches I imagine hate anyone who doesn't do what they you know, yeah. hold the line or do that and if he's running diagonally and, and like he's, he, you know, hang on what's he doing you know he's, mm. and um, yeah I can't imagine all all coaches like that. There was a real orthodoxy about that, mm. and about about being a unit and a team and professional. And we don't like individuality. We don't yeah. like you know creativity. Yeah, which got stereotyped into well, black players you can't trust them. Yeah, and, there, and there's terrible things. Yeah, you know, I think it was one Everton manager said he would never sign a black player and all that. You know, in, in the seventies and you know it, it's. It's awful, and I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure where that myth came from, mm. but it, it just it seemed to take hold this, right up until the late seventies. It's, it's a know. sort of strange yeah. one as well. It's not. It's not a specific. I mean, so it's quite specific. It's not. It's like I could sort of understand. Uh, or, I mean, not in any way appreciate, but understand sort of bog standard racism of <clears> this person is black. We're not interested in, in associating with them. But the the very specific idea that they were sort of. I don't know if it's maybe like lazy in certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Like it doesn't. It doesn't seem to. All those. Yeah, but the, and, and then this anywhere. is at the time when Pele and Eusebio were playing. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and had been in the '66 World Cup and been you know, yeah. you know glorified for how great they are. But it's, it's, they still didn't seem to have an impact. You know, yeah, it's a very strange. <laughs> they were seen as black but different rather than you know right. the, anyone who was black and British. Well, I don't know, yeah, they don't play different. like them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So he moves to, to West Brom as well, and alongside Brendan Batson and Cyril Regis. Yes, I forget the name for uh, the, the uh, of the uh, the the three singers as well. What was the name? The Three Degrees. The Three yeah, Degrees. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, I, I, in this particular documentary I was watching about it, there were people from the club at the time and some of the supporters who said that they felt like there was genuinely something. Oh, there was glam- glamour, the glamour. Well, yeah. the Three Degrees were like three gorgeous-looking black singers, like Philadelphia soul singers, mm. and they. They were massive over here. I think they were big enough in America, but they're huge over here. Yeah. So they'd be on things like Morecambe and Wise and the Two Ronnies, yeah, yeah. and the Christmas specials, all that. Mm. And they were like this gorgeous-looking three black women singers. Yeah. L- had lots of hits, you know, number ones sure. and all that. And um, they were Destiny's Child of the nineteen seventies. Well, <laughs> but they I'm were just trying to make it more culturally relevant. They, they were <laughs> they were on Saturday night TV quite a sure. lot. I think Ron, Ron Atkinson came up with the name. I think it was after. There was a program called Pebble Mill at One, which was like a, a precursor to the daytime chat show. Yeah, and they were on it, and the Three Degrees were on it. Right. Yeah, not planned because uh, it used to be filmed in Birmingham. Pebble Mill is the BBC studios in Birmingham, right. so the Three Degrees were over. Sort of, you know, yeah, yeah, we've got a new song out, whatever. And Laurie, Brendan, and Cyril were on it, and yeah. Ron was there. You know, obviously. 
drinking champagne in the green room, probably, knowing Ron. Um, And uh, the quip was, we've got the three degrees of our own. And he obviously, he was a good salesman when he obviously told that to some of the journos afterwards. And and then it stuck. Mm. But it was great because it it sort of fitted perfectly. They were all Mm. good-looking, handsome, glamorous, athletic young men. Mm. And people loved them. And, And that's how I remember... First seeing Laurie Cunningham, that West Brom team from sort of 77, 78, mm. didn't win anything, but they, they played brilliantly, and mm. they were the three black players. Well, Brenda Batson was a defender, so yeah, he was a, a good, good on the ball, but but it was Sil Regis and Laurie who mm. were the two that stuck out. You know, they were like I don't know Marvin Gaye and Otis Redding, mm. but they were fantastic, and the way Laurie played socks around his ankles running at people going off at angles crossing perfect left right foot mm. Cyril was this big strong centre forward headers volleys you know you know, just blasting away and they were great and it, to see them on match of the day w- was incredible and yeah. you just thought I wish they'd play for England mm. you know and they, and, and, and they weren't getting you know, I didn't know I was about 12 at the time right but they were coming up against this sort of the coaching thing that we just spoke about, you know, black players are unreliable or, you know, yeah. where you can't play alongside Kevin Keegan and, and all this sort of thing. So the, their cultural impact, I think, was massive. Right. And certainly Laurie, he got on the front of the Sunday Times magazine. And, and, yeah. and so sort of it goes from being just football into pop culture. So he's yeah. on, on the cover of all these sort of teen magazines and, mm. and you know, it becomes a bit more than just a footballer, a bit like, probably George Best in the 60s yeah. you know? so and, and because of the way they dressed and everything that everyone's interested them mm. you know, like team magazines and fashion magazines so it just becomes more than football and then do you think, think it helped to change perceptions of people at the time definitely yeah. I mean maybe not at the time I think it took a long time I think now mm. people look back at it and recognise but certainly black people I, I, when I spoke to Sil Regis it, for the book him and Laurie were best friends by the way you know, yeah. they met at West Brom but very very close friends and he said um, he still gets not just blokes but women in their 60s 70s 80s coming up to him saying Cyril Regis I remember you man oh, you were on the match of the day yeah mm. you Laurie Cunning oh man and giving him you know hugs mm. and everything because I think totally unknowingly but the three degrees for, for their peers you know black generation seeing them on match of the day most Saturday nights and maybe on other programmes as well you know yeah. I don't know whatever was consumer programmes or um, Laurie they did a really a really good piece about a 15 minute piece on a programme called Magpie which was like the ITV version of Blue Peter right. which was a children's programme right. but they interviewed him and they went to his mum's home in Tottenham yeah Showed him dancing in a nightclub. Yeah. Went and played five aside. Presenter went and played five aside with him at Orient. Right, Fantastic. Yeah. So he had this huge appeal, and I think seeing black people on telly at that time in seventy seven, seventy eight, mm. it wasn't a lot. Yeah. And you see them, um, and they're treated as normal. Yeah. yeah whatever and you that. see the inside yeah, of yeah. his home, and you know his life is very similar to you. I don't remember seeing that program. I've been shown that since, mm. but. Um, so I think it did, just the fact, the mere fact that they were getting broader, they weren't just on two-minute highlights on the telly, they were getting 
first or second game on Match of the Day. Also going across into other TV brand magazines. Yeah. People were talking about newspapers were starting to get interested. Yeah. I think that has a huge impact. A lot of FaceTime. And that times in with uh, the whole Black British thing as well. Yeah. So I imagine if you were the same age as Laurie or a bit younger and growing up and going to school in London, mm. you might just think, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a big photo of you know, someone who looks like my uncle or my dad. You yeah, know. yeah. Of course, you're going to be interested. Well, hence as well, you, we hear a lot of uh, uh, prof, you know professional since, particularly Ian Wright, who who wrote the forward to your book, and a lot of other black footballers who've come since Laurie Cunningham, talking about the three degrees, talking about uh, these guys as their as their heroes, and you can see a lot of them are very emotional about it. It means a lot to to those players, I suppose, because there was more of a dearth of, of people yeah. to fill that role for them. Right? And I think also it takes time as well. I think at the time. You just think, oh, they're great, but then also I'm interested in loads of other stuff as well. I'm interested in Stevie Wonder, and I'm also interested in that, that, and that, and that. And then you mm. you grow up, but then when you look back, I think probably, I think it takes a generation, I don't know, 15, 20 years, and you just think, God, yeah, that was really yeah. influential. That was really significant. Yeah. And I spoke to Cyril about it. He said, he had no idea that we were role models. You know, we were just mm. playing football. And, like, yeah. and about the whole abuse thing and monkey chants and bananas being thrown but he 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 reasons it saying well it happened in the ground so you could do something about it well once you get out people weren't coming up to him making monkey noises or 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 throwing things at him they're probably going to say hello to him or shake his hand you know Mm. so it's a association there yeah 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 it's 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 a very interesting time, I think. A very yeah. and there's parallels with I think now, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that earlier, actually, when we were talking about uh, police harassment, and particularly in America, I think mm. you can you can see that there's a this is very culturally relevant at the at the moment, and there's an argument to say that's the same for for um, for in Britain as well. And I just wanted to, to to ask you. I suppose you probably answered it in four or five different ways already, but. What is it that drew you personally to this story? Why did you want to write this book? Yeah, well, I th- I'll start thinking about that, and I think it's it's a combination of I do remember him particularly. I remember him and Cyril watching it on Match of the Day. That thing when I was growing up. So I was in nineteen seventy eight. I would have been thirteen. Mm. Football wasn't on the telly, so it was, it was match of the day on Saturday night, and then you might get highlights on sports night on Wednesday, and that was it. And so, match of the day was huge. Probably had it's probably like if you look at the audience figures, there was probably yeah. like eighteen million or something like yeah, crazy. <laughs> and that was it. And that was what you talked about when you went to school next week and all that. And yeah. I yeah, so it was it was a massive part of the week and I, I I do remember I can't remember the game but I remember thinking he was great and, and just loving the way he played and the gracefulness all that and then he went off to Spain and was like bloody hell you know, people don't do that you know, Kevin Keegan went to Hamburg but it was really rare for British footballers to go and play for Spain and then to play for Real Madrid so it's sort of stuck in my mind that, but then I didn't really think that much about him again. But then I saw that photo of him dressed up as a soul boy. I didn't realise at the time was a soul boy outfit, that mm. great Gatsby suit with the, yeah. the hat, the fedora hat, and the two tone shoes. And I loved it, and I thought, oh yeah, Laurie Cunningham, he was good, wasn't he? Um, so I just sort of Googled him like you do, 
and it was like born in Archer. I thought, hang on, that's near where I live, you know. Mm. And then um, I, I just sort of got intrigued by it, and I thought, this this picture, you know, that's taken at Late Orient in night. I think I found out about the picture first, and yeah, I've got this really. And then coincidentally, where I work at the Sunday Times, they have a, a sort of program where people come in and speak. You know, you go and hear people talk. And Cyril Regis came in. Yeah. And um, Cyril's great. And then I've, I've got loads of time for Cyril because he grew up in West London, not far from where I grew up. And, yeah. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And Cyril came in and he was talking about a book. And he's also, he's he's a Christian now, so he was talking about his faith, which was interesting. But um, I just went up to him afterwards and said, yeah, great, great to meet you, Cyril. Um, I was looking, you know, talking about, you know, looking at Laurie Cunningham, Laura, Laurie, you know, he, was, he was my best mate. I said, really? You know? And then I just got chatting with Cyril mm. and I thought, there's a story here, you know, and mm. I, I didn't think, oh, there's a book here immediately. You, I just thought, I'd love to talk to you again, Cyril. And he said, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was so approachable. He said, well, yeah, here's my number. Um, I live in Birmingham, but yeah, w- whenever you're free, mm. come on the chat. And I, I just couldn't shake it off. So I thought I rang him and I said, well, yeah, I'll come and talk to you. Mm. And, um, it sort of led from there, really, because right. he was telling me all about Laurie going out to the nightclubs and the and the and the, the soul and all that. And I I love all that that whole sort of youth culture side of it. And then it became yeah. like like we were saying, it becomes a story about identity. Yeah, it's all stuff I could relate to. I yeah. wasn't the soul boy, but I I, I knew people who were, yeah. and so that got me more than the football. I, I sort of knew the football. I didn't really know what he did at Madrid, but yeah. I, I knew the you know, the Orient and the West Brom thing. So you didn't have you, you didn't have a weren't looking for a project it just sort of hit you. No, no, no. And then, then I didn't even think I was going to write a book. I mean, I, I just thought he's a great local figure because he was born in Archway, lived in Finsbury Park. I thought, and my my day job is is working with pictures, so I could put, put a good photo exhibition. And mm. yeah, there's no bad pictures of Laurie Cunningham. He yeah. looks fantastic. <laughs> so I thought I could do this. Probably quite and. Um, did actually do that. Got there was a council doing a thing with a local arts organisation, and, and we did that, which was good. Um, and then someone came to that and said, uh, "You should write a book about this." Mm. <laughs> Who was a a writer? Yeah. And I said, "Oh right, okay. Um, how do I do that?" And he said, "Well, you know. and I met him a few times. He told me how to do a book proposal, and, and then it turned yeah. into a book. Yeah. yeah. Wow." How do, and how do you feel about it since because out now as it's already published? How, yeah, how you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm pleased with it. I mean, I, like anything, I don't think you're ever fully satisfied. Sure. And there's lots that I left out, got edited out, and I I can see why. But I think there's another book the same length as well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm pleased with it, and I'm pleased with you. Actually, his family are happy with it, mm. um, and I'm. I think it does him justice yeah. because I think he was more than just a footballer. I think he he had so much. He was so interesting, and he's very significant. Mm. So I hope that I've steered people towards you know finding about Laurie Cunningham. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the last thing to mention, I suppose, is that we're in Islington now, but you've just come from Leighton, where outside Leighton Orient Stadium they've yeah, yeah. unveiled Brisbane a new, uh, yeah, new uh, statue. Today, of this morning, they unveiled a statue mm. to Laurie. Um, just. Um, in the shadow of Brisbane Road in mm. Coronation Gardens and no, it was, it was lovely Cyril Regis was there um, his family his brother Keith was there and relatives and, and his son Sergio came over from Spain from Madrid 
Sergio was only one year old when he died in the car crash in 89. And he made a lovely speech, you know, quite an emotional speech about um, how he's got a fo- he works in a restaurant, he's got a photograph of his father on the wall. Mm. And um, no, it was lovely. It was lovely to see that because the statue, it's a bronze statue looking straight towards whatever stand it is on Brisbane Road. Mm. Yeah. The, the road, I think it's Buckingham Road and Brisbane Road, so it's on the corner there looking straight at it. And I think that Orient, under George Petchy, their manager, he, he was there for five years. I think that's where he could have drifted away completely from football if George Petchy hadn't given him yeah. the leeway. Because he was quite erratic and, and, and you know, like saying me, he's interested in lots of other things. He might have just walked away from the game mm. because... He trained at Arsenal for a couple of years between fourteen and sixteen, then being rejected by Arsenal. So he might have yeah. just a lot of people might have thought, "Well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm giving up now." Mm. But Pecci really, really sort of um, mentored him, and um, I think made him or helped him become the player that he that he became. Yeah. So it's, it's fitting that he's at Orient. He was there for five years, and I think he was probably at his freest and most. You know, um, Creative. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what strikes me as interesting about what you were saying about attending the the unveiling of the statue is that uh, his son, you know his son's speech is very emotional. It must be interesting for you, having spent a long time researching and writing this yeah. book, and probably learning an awful lot about a family of which you you aren't really a part of. Yeah, must, yeah, yeah. You must yeah, feel yeah. like a yeah, and you do feel like you're intruding a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well I, I had I had met Sergio before. I went to speak to him and his mother mm. Sylvia. Um, who are lovely, but they they don't speak English and I don't speak Spanish, right, yeah, so um, yeah. <laughs> it was all done through an interpreter. Um, but he's a lovely he's a lovely boy and um, boy. I mean, he's twenty nine now, <laughs> but um, no, really nice people. And it, yeah, it was it was I did feel quite emotional sort of when he was speaking, and he prepared this speech and he said it in English, which yeah, fair play to him because he's it's, he's not not a fluent English speaker. Yeah, and. Um, I was standing next to Cyril Regis when he made the speech and I um, did feel quite emotional. I've got Cyril here, who yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember loving when I was like a teenager. Sergio there, who's you know, making this really effective speech. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a lovely way to sort of bookend the book, if that doesn't sound stupid. But... Um, <laughs> And the fact he's got a statue, that's amazing. I mean, it's, it's nothing to do with me. It's just, mm. you know, this is Waltham Forest Council and Lake Norian mm. thinking the world of him. Yeah. So I sort of feel like I've I've written the book, but I'm, I'm glad because there's this, all this other feeling of goodwill and sort of mm. the fact that he was so significant. So, yeah, it, 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 was, it, it was, a, was a nice way to spend the morning. Mm. Well, Dermot, thanks very much for talking to me. Right. Really appreciate it.